Uh, Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this time of reflection, this time of singing, this time in which we have been reminded, Lord, you're a holy God. You're a God who's worthy to be praised. We have sought to bless you, Lord, and we thank you that you have given us hope in your word. You are our hope, Lord. And now we pray that as we open this portion of your word, and as we think about, Lord, the fact that you are a God who prays for, that our Lord Jesus prayed for those who were unbelievers around him. Lord, I pray for everyone today who's hearing your word. May you, by your Spirit, speak to each one, and may you apply these truths to our hearts, that we might be a people whose hearts are inflamed with a passion for you and a passion for the lost. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we return once again to Acts chapter 27. Sounds like a broken record. Some of you don't know what that means. I'm sorry, I'm old. But uh, it just means I'm back to, for the fourth time now, we're in Acts 27. Some of you are probably wondering to yourself, what in the world? Four times now we're still in this chapter about this ship that has a shipwreck and big storm. And why are you doing that? So I'm just going to explain to you, rather than preach one sermon with like five points and barely touching on the points I'm trying to think through and expand on, I've decided to cover these observations and reflections and principles uh, in the text. Rather than one sermon, I'm going to slow down and do it in sermon after sermon. So here we are with part number four, and uh, we're going to look at uh, the fact that as you read through this text in Acts 27, I'm not going to read the entire chapter, there is more going on than you would notice if you just read it in a superficial way. Because clearly, as you read through the text, God is sovereignly orchestrating a difficult event, a difficult set of circumstances. And those circumstances, with this storm and being on the sea, and being at a point where they're not sure they're going to survive this storm, it's clearly become a providential opportunity. There's an open door here for Paul to have gospel influence on the lives of 275 people who are accompanying him on this ship on the Mediterranean Sea. And Paul and his fellow passengers have survived two weeks of this horrendous storm at sea. It's a treacherous terrifying moments, obviously, that have been tossed about by the waves, and the wind is relentless, and they have somehow, at the end of the chapter, they safely survive the storm. Now look at verse 20, if you will, in Acts 27, and you get a sense of just the degree of danger that they faced in that storm. No small storm was assailing us. Now we can rephrase that to say, This was a huge storm that was against us in trying to sail. And from then on, having gone through this storm, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. What is that saying? 
It's saying that on humanly speaking, from a secular point of view, the majority of people on that ship had concluded in their mind, I'm not going to live through this storm. This is the end of my life. And Paul, interestingly enough, views the situation not merely as a storm, because, by the way, he's been through how many shipwrecks and survived? Three, right? Because this is his fourth. So he's been through this before. He doesn't know how it's going to turn out on his own, but God did give him an indication, as we read here in just a minute. Paul did not view this merely as a disappointment. I'm trying to get from point A to point B. I'm trying to get to Rome. And so this is just disappointing. This is frustrating. This is just an interruption. No, he sees this, as we said weeks ago, this is his appointment. This is God's working in this situation. And we tried to connect this passage in Acts 27 with a very important text that Paul encourages the believers there in Colossae, chapter 4, verse 5. Paul says, in the context of sharing the gospel, praying that the Lord would open opportunities to speak of Christ, he says in that passage in Colossians 4, he says, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. Think about how you act, how you react when you're with unbelievers, making the most of the opportunity, making the most of the occasion that God sovereignly, providentially puts you in. When you're around unbelievers or you're with unbelievers and they're in difficult times, realize that God has, this is a strategic ministry moment. And so what we understand then in this text is that Paul, even though he's a prisoner, even though he's got chains on him, even though he's not in control, he's what? He's a prisoner on mission for God. What a way to look at life. Do you look at your life that way? You're on mission for God, whatever you are, whatever you're doing. You say, well, I'm not on a ship and I'm not in prison. Yeah, but you can have problems all around you or you can be in situations where you know people who are in problems that are very serious problems and difficulties. You're on mission for Christ. And so we've been trying to answer the question last few weeks, how can a follower of Jesus make the most of a difficult situation, make the most of a, what, what do you want to say, a problem situation, a, a difficulty, a a, 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 a a kind of disaster that may come into your life or the life of somebody you know, how can we use those situations and make the most of those as opportunities to impact the unbelievers around us? Now in your notes, you'll notice that we've tried to answer that question in several different ways over the week in looking at this text. Uh, and I'll just go over those quickly with you. We want to remind you that there you can find strength because of Christian fellowship. You can be assured that you belong to God no matter what. Boy, that makes such a difference to no security in the middle of whatever problem you're in. Thirdly, you can accept the difficult situation as you're assigned this by God. He's, he's sovereignly in control of all things. Fourthly, we looked at the fact that we want to rely wholeheartedly on the sure promises of God, and God gave promises to Paul in this, in this uh, chapter. And today that brings us to point number five as to how we can make the most of the opportunity, and it's this, earnestly, and compassionately pray for and pray with unbelievers. Compassionately pray for and with unbelievers. Now I think it's generally true, this is a general statement, 
that most people who find themselves in a dangerous situation, who are possibly facing their own death, people who never normally ever pray, and who live their lives day after day as if God is irrelevant or God doesn't even exist, those people, I believe, in those dangerous situations, many of them, if not most of them, will cry out to God for help. Recently I've been reading World Magazine and came across uh, a fascinating article. I wish I could read you the whole thing. It's far too long. Uh, it's from a brand new book called Indianapolis. It's the story of the USS Indianapolis, a battleship that went down World War II, uh, torpedoed by the Japanese, and it describes the experience of those individuals who are now in, this, in the ocean, and uh, they have a crowd of corpses that are floating around them. I mean, just the, scene, the scene is indescribably, unbelievably difficult. Uh, the Marines, who were strong and vibrant soldiers, are now, after a several days of being in the ocean, floating around with their life preservers on, which are taking on water. Even those are not uh, having much buoyancy anymore. And their tongues are swelling so big they can hardly swallow anymore. Their eyes are inflamed because, and they're bulging out of their sockets because the salt water has done a number on their eyes and the blaring of the sun. They are only experiencing thirst, pain, heat, blood, they're sharks, and there's the stench of dead people all around them. And in this situation, fearing hypothermia, fearing dehydration, one man, one afternoon, this is like the day five, and he says, he's, he breaks the silence with a prayer. He starts praying out loud. And he said, it says, every still sane man in the group had to take a turn pleading with God for deliverance. Can you just hear that? And the writer goes on to say, the prayers continued for three hours. Not rote prayers. But these were humble, genuine supplications, punctuated by impassioned stories about loved ones who were waiting for them at home, and lapsed men who had perhaps never prayed beyond their childhood now were crying out to God. The unseen, who was unseen except God could see them, but they couldn't see him. What's my point here? My point is that what? People who are in crisis oftentimes turn to God in prayer. And in this text, I want us to think about just for a moment that prayer was definitely being lifted up during that horrendous storm at sea. And all hope seems to be gone, but there's still a person who is praying during that storm. And interestingly enough, this person who is silently seeking God in prayer happens to be the prisoner on board. It is the Apostle Paul. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, let's look at the text and notice there's some indicators here. Look at verse 24, which again is, has so many significance uh, angles to it. Verse 24 is God assuring Paul, as Paul explains this to other people, he says, uh, the angel came to me, verse 23, whom I belong, whom I serve, uh, stood before me saying, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. And behold, and watch this, 
God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. The angel assures Paul that God not only heard him in his prayers, but that that prayer request that he has been offering has been granted. Now, a little parenthesis here at this point. I think that's a fascinating insight about prayer in general. The prayer has been granted. It's a reminder to me that God, as we come to God in prayer, we, God deals with us in grace. It's never appropriate to say to God, hey God, you must do this and demand God to do X, Y, or Z. That's not the right approach to God. We never make demands of God. We don't command God to make such and such happen. We humbly beseech a great and mighty and awesome, wonderful King and our Father in heaven, yes, who shows us undeserved mercy and grace and deals with us in love only because of Christ. So that's just a thought about he granted that prayer. Notice also two observations I'm going to make now about prayer in, in Acts 27. The first is this. How can we see this as a situation to make an impact on the lives of unbelievers? First of all, there was private prayer that was being offered, or you could also say it was silent prayer. Private prayer or silent prayer is being offered. Because you never really actually read the words that Paul uttered in his prayer in the text. It's not mentioned there. And perhaps one reason that it's not recorded is because Paul's prayers were never offered aloud. They were private or they were silent. The passengers on the boat had no clue that Paul had been praying for them, for their survival. And again, I'm, again don't think that Paul is, he's not a person who's down on his knees and you know, crying out before God and making a big ruckus, you know, in the middle of the storm and drawing attention to himself. No, I don't think that's going on at all. But based on verse 24, we get the sense that what Paul and his, the issue that was on his heart that he was burdened for in the middle of the storm is what? He's praying for the survival of all these unsaved people around him. Notice that Paul in his private and silent prayers for all these lost people who are basically, it looked like, unless God did intervene, it looked like many, if not all of them, were going to have their death upon that sea. They were without hope. They were without gospel assurance. They were without Christ. And so prayer for lost people was being offered for them, but they did not know that. There's somebody praying, but the lost people had no clue someone was praying for them. Isn't that interesting? And isn't it interesting that God heard that prayer? A prayer that I'm sure was not, you know, carefully put together. Again, Mike is appropriate. It's right to be putting thoughts and prayers together in a public setting like this where you don't want to just ramble on. But in the middle of a storm, you don't think it all through very carefully. It comes out of your heart in an earnest and sincere way, and Paul is doing that, but there's compassionate intercession for the lost crew on that ship. There's compassionate intercession for the lost soldiers who are on that ship. There's compassionate intercession for the lost prisoners who are on this ship with the Apostle Paul. They're about to perish. 
I don't know how many of you ever heard of George Mueller, but he was a man who took to heart the promises of the gospel and the promises about God is made about prayer. And he just held on to those promises and said, I'm going to pray. And so he, in the mid-1800s, he had several orphanages. He was praying that God would provide for those needs. And he, he also had a burden for people that he knew who were not believers. And he began to pray for these unbelievers by name. And he said this in his diary. In November of 1844, he wrote, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day for these five, without a single intermission, whether I was sick or whether I was in health. Eighteen months went by, a year and a half, before the first of the five was converted. He doesn't tell us how. I thanked God and prayed on for the others. Five years elapsed, and then the second was converted. I thanked God for the second and prayed on for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them, and six years passed, and I thanked God for the three, and then went on praying for the other two, and the two remained unconverted. Thirty-six years later, he wrote that the other two, sons of one of Mueller's friends, were still not converted. Now I just, when I read that, and I thought to myself, 36 years of praying for these two individuals indicated that Mueller's heart was full of compassion. He wrote in his journal, I hope in God. I pray on and I look for the answer. They are not converted yet, but he was confident that they would be. And in the story, 1897, 52 years later, after he began to pray daily without interruption for these two men, they were finally converted. But after he died. Now, I'm not trying to say to you that because Paul prayed, for all these individuals on this boat, that all those people came to Christ. I'm not trying to say to you that if you do, and I hope you will pray for unbelievers, that all of them are going to come to Christ. I'm not trying to, that's not the point of the illustration. The point of the illustration is to say that the heart of compassion for the lost around us means that we'll pray for them. What is it that would help us to persist in prayer? To not give up? To, like Mueller, keep praying and to pray on, persist in prayer? for unbelievers, faithfully. Why is it that some of us lack motivation to pray for the lost around us who are outside of Christ? What will help us to sustain us in praying for unsaved people? i got several, two thoughts here. A couple things come to mind. Number one, I think one of the reasons that many of us rarely, if ever, pray for the lost is because our hearts have become indifferent to their plight. We no longer are thinking about or or our minds are not really contemplating, and we overlook the fact that they remain cut off from Christ. That they are without hope, the Scriptures say. That they are excluded from the life of God, Ephesians chapter 4. And so Paul, I believe, as one who never lost sight of where he had been in his life outside of Christ, he was religious, but he was lost. He was cut off from 
the life of God. And he never forgot that. And so looking back at a man who was so proud for so many years, so self-righteous all those years, and realizing that God sovereignly opened the eyes of his heart so that he would see and savor Jesus Christ, he, I believe, had a heart that never lost sight of the fact that he's a believer only by the grace of God, and therefore he needs to keep praying for his fellow Jews who in their own spiritual blindness haven't come to where he was. And that's why I had us read the scriptures there, Jason read for us earlier, that the grace of God and the gospel kept Paul's heart tender toward these unbelieving Jews around him. And so he writes in Romans chapter 10, his burden for his fellow lost Jews, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for the Jewish people is for their salvation. So what is it that will help us to persist in prayer for the lost? First of all, is to review the basics of the gospel. Review the basics of the gospel. Keep reminding ourselves, just like Paul did, that as we pray for our Jewish friends, pray for our unbelieving friends and family, it's always the overflow of a heart of compassion. Why? Knowing that these people are facing a Christless eternity. If they refuse to repent, if they refuse to turn from their sins, if they refuse to turn in humble faith to Christ, who is the one and only mediator between God and man, they are facing a Christless eternity. So being reminded of the gospel, I think, helps us. You remember the true account in the mid-1950s of five missionary couples who went to Ecuador, fresh out of college, many of them with small children, and the men left the women and children behind and went off into the jungles trying to seek to win these lost members of a violent tribe, the Walrani tribe, sometimes they're called the Alka Indians. The reason they're so violent is because people have been violent to them invading their territory with these oil companies and whatever. But they were known to be rather brutal, and they were. And the men, the five missionary men, determined in their attempts to try to approach them in as peaceful manner as they knew how. They were dropping off gifts. They were trying to encounter them. And they made a point to land there on the side of this river in, the, in their yellow uh, prop airplane. And they had a little base there. They determined when they were there, they were not going to use their weapons in self-defense. They had weapons. They could have killed all these people. But when they were being attacked by them, and they were, soon thereafter, they, were came, with, they came with their spears, they came with arrows, and all five of them ended up dying. Why did they, why did they let that happen that way? The question was asked. And the answer was this. And this is one of the quotes from one of the missionaries before he died. These people don't know the Lord. They can't afford to die, but we can. That's a heart of compassion for the lost. And that's what I think the gospel reminds us, is that if we remember what Christ has done for us, we are only alive in Christ because Christ had compassion on us and has brought us to faith. So therefore, 
we want to keep praying for others who have not thus far seen and appreciated and loved Christ like we do. Secondly, I would like to suggest that praying for unbelievers is another way in which we can humbly acknowledge that we are powerless to change another person's heart. In other words, say it this way. One of the things that we're in praying for the lost is that we are to remember our helplessness. You can no more change another person's heart as you can stop the world from spinning on its axis. But the Bible says that only God, through his gospel, can change. And he's the one who does change people's hearts. Jonah chapter 2 verse 9 says, Salvation comes from the Lord. Regeneration is God's work. Listen to this verse. John chapter 6.44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It doesn't say no one may come to me. It says no one can come to me except the Father draws him. And so I would just remind you, and I don't have time to expand on this. I can give you a handout if you want one sometime later. But to remember, God's part in salvation is that God is the one who makes it happen. It is God who causes people to come to Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, By his own doing you are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, referring to God. It is God who saves. It is God who makes alive. It is God who predestines. So if that's true, and it is, then to pray for other people around us is a reminder that while we can't do it, Lord, we're looking for you to do that work in their hearts. So a suggestion I would make to you, and we do this often, or I've done it numerous times and still try to do it, is when you're out enjoying a meal and you have a waitress or waiter come to your table after you take your order and uh, you've gotten everything all is taken care of, just say to the person, listen, we're just getting ready to thank the Lord for our food that you're going to, the order we just put in. Is there some way we can pray for you? We'd like to pray for you. How can, we, how can we pray for you? It's a fascinating opportunity. Sometimes people will open up, talk about what's going on in their lives. Some people say, oh, I don't need prayer. I'm good, thanks. Okay, pray all the more for them because they don't realize their life is completely cut off from Christ. So there are people around us that you can be praying for and they don't need to hear even the prayer that you're praying, but you pray and seek them compassionately. Asking the Lord to take the difficult situations that many people find themselves in as unbelievers, it's an opportunity for gospel ministry. This is an opportunity that God has brought this perhaps problem into their life, this difficulty in their life, so that He might be at work to impart new life within them, to make their little idols and the things that they're hanging on to, that they're worshiping, realize these things are not going to hold me up. They're not going to satisfy. Only Christ can. I was reminded this past week that all of the passengers on board the Titanic, which included millionaires, celebrities, average, middle class, folk, 
and poor, less well-off, economically speaking, people who were in steerage, all of those people were reduced down into two categories at the end of that tragedy. Saved and lost. And that's where it all boils down to. Either you're saved or you're lost. I don't care who you are or where you are in life. It's a reminder that what? We pray for people who are lost that God would show them mercy. That God would humble them during their time of hardship. So that they would realize what? I'm always praying. Lord, teach them that life is fragile. They think they're so secure. They think that things are, oh, I can handle this. No, you can't. God can humble you so quickly. I know. I was in that ER telling me that something's major wrong with my aorta. I had no clue that was going to happen to me that day. And I'm praying that when that happens in their life, they realize whatever it is that God gets their attention, I'm praying that what? That they will listen. That they will listen, according to C.S. Lewis. Listen to the God who's trying to get their attention. That's what I pray. That God will bring them into life. So we've looked at the first way to pray is, is to do prayers that are silent or prayers that are private, if you will. Notice secondly here that in this chapter 27 of Acts, there are public or spoken prayer that was being offered. And this is Paul involved in this, verse 35 through verse 37. Again, the storm has been going on and on and on. Nobody's been eating. So Paul took bread and he gave thanks to God in the presence of all. Isn't that interesting that he says that? He offers thanks in the presence, thanks to God, in the presence of all. And he broke it and began to eat. And all of them, all of them, 270 some people on the ship, so I don't know who, I'm assuming that includes a vast, if not all of them, right? All of them were encouraged and they themselves also took food and all of us on the ship are what? 276 persons. Now, I think to myself, I ask the question, was this merely an account of Paul doing what he always did before he ate? Like, it's a habit. Just like many of us automatically just thank God out of a habit. Or could this have been Paul's deliberate attempt to draw attention to several reasons why these people ought to be thankful to God in the midst of a life-threatening storm? I mean, Paul no doubt expressed gratitude for the food that was now going to be enjoyed, and he's also expressing gratitude for the promise that he's already announced to everybody on the ship, you're not going to die, nobody's going to be uh, dying here in this tragedy, in this near tragedy, and that uh, in this dangerous crisis at sea, your life is going to be spared. He's probably thanking God for that. So praying in front of unbelievers can be a very simple and effective way to express to them our faith in God. A God in which we say, we believe there is a God. And we don't just talk about it, we don't just think it inside of us, we act on that. The Bible says that the way to please God is to believe that He exists, and then what? Express our faith in turning to Him and counting on the fact that he is a rewarder of those who sincerely seek him. That is your prey. And so, here is 
a confidence that we can have that as we pray to God in the hearing of other unbelievers is we're trying to help them see, you know, we have a loving Heavenly Father. We have a God who's in control of all things. We have a God who is, uh, gives good gifts to His children. And so speaking our prayers out loud should not necessarily be something that we go on and on and on, ramble on in our prayers before an unbeliever. A short, pithy prayer is appropriate. Secondly, I'd also suggest that we not use any kind of fancy phrases, any kind of theological, complicated words and all that kind of stuff. Keep it as a simple, short, sincere conversation with our Father who's in heaven. And in so doing, you'll never know the impact that that will have when we have our simple prayers. Whether it's over a meal or whether your friend just describes a problem they're going through, say, let me pray for you. Is it okay if I pray? vast majority of people are going to say, no, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Now, I'll just give you a bit of advice here. A helpful guy wrote on this, John Leonard wrote a book called Get Real. It's about sharing our faith. Very interesting book. Fascinating. Totally different than what you think about when you think about sharing your faith. Anyway, he goes talk about a whole chapter on praying with and for unbelievers. And he says, I don't close my eyes when I pray with unbelievers. He says it freaks them out. They get uncomfortable and they don't want to stick around for it. He says, I've learned just keep my eyes open and I pray. I put my hand on their shoulder sometimes. Sometimes I don't. And he says, what I'm hoping will happen in this prayer is that the people around me will have a changing of their minds about what they assume is true about prayer. He says, unbelievers have a wrong view of prayer. They think that you have to be a special person. You have to be a priest. You have to be a minister to pray. They think that you have to use special words that sound as if they come from the King James Bible. But he says, when you speak, you're going to be praying as someone who's been listening. You've been a compassionate heart toward them. You're now entering into their world and you now understand what's going on in their life. And so you're going to pray as one who's really been listening carefully to what they're concerned about, what they're dealing with. And you want them to be seeking the Lord, not looking to you for all the answers. Because you're saying to them, I don't know what the best way to help these people. Lord, would you help them? It's fascinating. And again, he says, pray short prayers, of course. He mentions that as well. And then he says this. It's such a small thing to do, but it might mean the world to the one that you're speaking with, the unbeliever. We are surrounded by people every day who are in desperate situations. They don't know where to turn. They believe they can't pray because they're not good enough. And God doesn't listen to them. So why bother? They may not even know anyone. They may not even know anyone they can ask to pray for them. And so his point is, it's a powerful way to incorporate your compassionate heart for unbelievers is to pray with them and for them. And I've thought and meditated on that, and I've thought to myself, you know, Paul, before he was saved, heard the earnest prayer of a very godly, pious, um, holy man and follower of Jesus. His name was Stephen. Stephen, in the most critical crisis of his life, Stephen was giving a gospel witness to various people there in Jerusalem. 
And Paul and his fellow Pharisees are standing there listening to this speech go on and on. And they get so worked up, so angry, so intolerant to let the man finish what he's going to say. They take up stones. Paul takes their jackets over there as a witness. And a bunch of people are grabbing those stones and they're throwing them at him to stone him. And so what happens? Here is unsaved Paul. He has got a hardened heart. And he hears Stephen cry out with a loud voice. Stephen's done nothing, nothing to deserve to die. He's just been speaking the truth in love. He hears Stephen cry out, not curse words, not angry words. He hears Stephen say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he says this, Lord, do not hold this sin against these people. And I wonder myself, could it be that in Stephen's most agonizing moment of his life, that he was being used of God to make a gospel impact on the people around him, on the unsaved, angry, self-righteous, proud, religious people around him, just by merely praying the words that Jesus prayed and making them his own. So there's the example of the first martyr that comes to mind as the impact of a, a person hearing someone praying. for. But then there's the example on the cross, right? Of Jesus. And if you look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, and I would encourage you to read that further this week and meditate on this. Here is Luke, who, by the way, wrote Acts, right? So here's Luke's, again, another account of this prayer. And so he, he reminds us that Jesus is praying aloud for the unsaved people all around him in his moment of weakness right before he dies. And notice what happens right after he prays for the people around him, praying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. That was his prayer. A prayer that was heard by the soldiers, the crowd, the, the disciples, the religious leaders of the day. They're hearing him pray. Could it have been that the Spirit of God uses that prayer and begins to convict them? Convict their hardened conscience? And I believe the answer is yes. You say, how do you know that? Because there's one person in earshot of Jesus praying that prayer who realizes instead of hearing everyone cursing and yelling and screaming the, the utter horror and the agony and the pain they're going through, which is going on the right and on the left of Jesus, here's one of the thieves who'd been abusing Jesus and cursing at him and making fun of him, mockering him as he's dying on the cross. He turns and realizes this guy just prayed for all the people who just put him on the cross. He becomes convicted of his sin. He realizes, I deserve this. He doesn't. He turns to Christ and says, look, would you please help me into your kingdom? And Jesus turns to him and says, even today, you'll be with me in paradise. Is it not possible that Jesus' prayer for the lost was something that God used to now bring this person into humble repentance and faith and into the kingdom? Who knows the mysteries of how the Holy Spirit works? All I know is this. Jesus prayed for unbelievers that they might find forgiveness through the gospel, which he provided through his sinless life, his substitutionary death, and his victorious resurrection from the dead. 
Here's my final thought. If you are a Christian here today, you are because Christ prayed for you. If you're not a Christian here today, my friend, Christ loves you and He has prayed for you. Come to Him. Find life in Him. And know that He as one who is only one who can impart new life. He can do it in your life, even today. Let's pray. Before I lead in prayer, I just want to ask you to take a moment and think in your heart. Are you a person who enjoys the privileges and blessings of life in Christ? If so, would you ask the Lord to burden, put on your heart, and write in your notes, or write upon the heart, your heart today, the names of some individuals that you are going to purpose in your heart. I'm going to keep praying for these people. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to keep praying for them. And I'm going to keep, keep, keep on praying for them because God has been so gracious to me. I want to see that same grace saving this person and imparting new life in them. It could be the person you're related to. It could be the person that you live near. It could be the people that you go to school with. It could be the person that you're your enemy, the person you'd rather not be around, the bully at school. Whoever that person is, would you purpose in your heart and say, Lord, give me a burden for this person. Fill my heart with compassion for them. And if you're a person who's here today and you could not answer that question that you're not a believer, would you just take a moment of encouragement and realize that Christ in His prayer for you is praying that you would find forgiveness. And the only way you're going to find forgiveness is through Jesus Christ, who died for you and took on your punishment so that you might not be punished and cut off from God. Turn to Christ. Say, Lord Jesus, save me. I don't want to be in the lost category at the end of life. I want to be those who are reconciled to you through Christ. I want to have new life. I want a new heart. I want to be living a new life. Lord Jesus, save me. And he'll hear your cry as you come to him through Christ. Father, how we thank you that you're a God who hears prayer. And you're a God who prays. We pray that you may help us to use and seize the opportunities that come into our lives, even in the storms of life, particularly in the storms of life, that we may be used to be on mission in touching the lives around us through compassionate, earnest prayer. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.